Hello, explorers. My name is Daniel Nevin. Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast, where we discuss the stories, lessons, and research of healthcare in extreme environments. I want to begin with the words of British explorer Sir Raymond Priestley, who summarized this episode best when he wrote, For scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficiency of travel, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. By the end of this, you'll understand the truth behind those words. But this episode came out a little bit longer than I expected it to, so I'm going to try something different and split it into two parts. I'll release the first part now, and the second part will come out in about a week. Let me know what you think of this format, or if you prefer your information delivered all at once. But for now, let's get to it. In many ways, the history of Antarctic exploration is the polar opposite of Arctic exploration. Unlike the populated Arctic, the Antarctic Circle is entirely devoid of civilization. The Arctic has been described as a sea of ice nearly surrounded by land. The Antarctic is a frozen landmass surrounded and isolated by ice and open ocean. There are no indigenous people on the continent and the nearest inhabited landmass is over 3,200 kilometers away from Antarctica's coastline. That's roughly the radius of the planet Mars. The Antarctic temperatures are cold, ranging from 10 degrees Celsius at the northernmost extremes to minus 90 Celsius at the coldest it was recorded on the continent, and it's largely devoid of plant and animal life. There are marine-based animals near the ocean, but the largest land animal in Antarctica is a wingless insect that grows less than 1.3 centimeters in length. The South Polar Plateau lies at 2,835 meters, that's about 9,000 feet, above sea level. However, the momentum of the Earth's rotation pulls the atmosphere out and towards the equator, almost like swinging a ball on a string. And this means that the atmosphere is thinner over the poles and thicker over the equator, and the pressure altitude over the poles is about 1,000 to 1,300 meters higher than those at sea level, depending on the season. It's much harder to reach Antarctica than it is to reach the Arctic, so written history of Antarctica is much more recent. The ancient Greeks did speculate that there was a symmetry to the Earth, so once Pythias had discovered the frozen territory under the constellation of the Great Bear up in the north areas, or Arcticos, they speculated about an equally cold place in the south, referred to as an Antarcticos, though they never actually reached it. After that reference, there are a few unverified and likely unverifiable stories from ancient Polynesian oral traditions. These stories describe how the Maori explorer, Wite Rangbiora, I'm going to butcher that name and I'm sorry, um, reached the frozen southern seas somewhere around the year 650. If these tales are true, she would be the first person to reach the Antarctic. But for now, that truth remains obscured in antiquity, and verified human history in the Antarctic begins in the early 1800s. The first landing occurred in the 1820s, and the first winter over was the Southern Cross Expedition in 1898. While these expeditions are certainly worth learning about, and the explorers learned a great deal from the northern expeditions and were far more successful, so instead, I'm going to focus in this episode on three major explorers because they form a kind of natural experiment in leadership style and preparation I think is worth learning from. As an aside, for those of you who have asked earlier for uh, more details about how the atmosphere works and some of the other exploration environments, I'll put those into upcoming mini-episodes, but for now, 
we'll go back to the early 1900s and meet this colorful cast of characters. So the first person I want to introduce you to is Robert Falcon Scott. He was a British explorer who cut his Antarctic teeth during the Discovery Expedition from 1901 to 1904. That hut still stands on the edge of the Ross Sea. It's within walking distance of the largest modern station in Antarctica, McMurdo, and it's a sturdy wooden structure with small, thick, double-paned windows overlooking a frozen bay and surrounded by volcanic rock. I had the privilege of visiting this hut during my time on the continent, so I'll put a few pictures of what it looks like up on the website. It could easily still be in use today, and the only sign of age is really just a naturally mummified seal my teammates and I nicknamed Lucille, lying outside the, the eastern wall of the cabin. The second character in our Antarctic roster is the Norwegian Roald Amundsen. You may remember his name from our second episode as the first person to successfully navigate the Northwest Passage after exhaustive planning and training. But in 1910, these two, Scott and Amundsen, both announced their intention to try to reach the South Pole. They entered into what is now a famous and well-documented competition. These two explorers had a very different leadership style, and their competition is where our natural experiment will begin. Scott's overall goal for the mission was scientific exploration, and he wanted to reach the South Pole before Amundsen. So he established his initial base of operations by choosing an area he knew well in a very geologically interesting part of the continent, and he decided to follow in the not quite successful footsteps of an earlier South Pole explorer, Ernest Shackleton. We'll get more to him later. Scott chose a spot on the other side of Ross Island from his discovery hut called Cape Evans. This spot is also geologically interesting, and it was also something Scott was familiar with from that expedition, which made it a good site for collecting samples, and also something he could navigate through fairly easily. Scott's model for this expedition was an earlier 1907 attempt to reach the pole by Ernest Shackleton. Shackleton got within 97 miles of the pole using mechanical tractors and horses as his primary transport, but he had to turn around due to technical difficulties and becoming low on supplies. Basically, the trip took longer than Shackleton had expected. The progress was slower because of the tractors and the horses, so he had turned back before he ran out of food. Scott liked how close he'd gotten, so he decided to copy much of Shackleton's plan. In contrast, Amundsen's goal was to reach the pole before Scott, period. He was not a scientist, and science was not a priority for his expedition. He established his base on the opposite side of the Ross Sea, by the Bay of Wales. Now this was a new route, it hadn't yet been tried, but he learned from some of the challenges experienced by earlier expeditions, including Shackleton, and he chose the Bay of Wales because it was 60 miles closer to the pole, and it meant less travel over sea ice and its associated crevices. Now I'm going to pull back here for a minute and discuss these routes. Ross Island is exactly that, an island. It's surrounded by a frozen ocean, called the Ross Ice Shelf, that has a permanent section, dozens of meters thick, and a seasonal section that never really gets more than a few meters or so in thickness. Despite being frozen, this shelf is subject to the immense power of the oceans, and in certain areas have a tendency to crack, particularly the seasonal ice where it pushes up against the permanent ice shelf. Now the route that he planned to take after this shelf is Beardmore Glacier. This is a slowly flowing river of ice spilling into a nearly permanently frozen ocean that's stuck up against a thinner and more mobile frozen sea. All of this is in motion, and all of it is constantly changing. It's a bit like hiking across a field that shifts around the way the staircases in Hogwarts Castle do. 
one day it's solid flat plain, and a week later it would be filled with jagged edges, hills several meters high, and crevices tens of meters deep. We still lose people and vehicles through this ice field today. The most recent example occurring only last year, and the National Science Foundation, who administers most of the U.S. operations in Antarctica, takes this danger very seriously. They require intense training and extensive safety equipment to be carried on every icebound expedition. Scott's plan was to cross this treacherous ice field for half of his thousand-mile journey before reaching the more solid ice cap over the landmass of the continent itself. From there, he would ascend over Beardmore Glacier and head to the pole in hopes of beating his rival Amundsen. Amundsen didn't trust the ice. Instead, he decided to try the unknown but shorter and theoretically more stable route that skipped over most of the sea ice danger and kept him largely over the continent. Scott wanted to go with the familiarity of what was done before, because it nearly worked, and his plan was to conduct a number of scientific surveys along the way, establish food depots and camps, and then finally make a push towards the pole. The depots meant he'd be able to carry less food the further he went, and the expedition would also give him and his team time to practice and work out some of the challenges in the landscape. In order to carry out this depot setting plan, he had a very complex transportation system worked out. Now, I acknowledge that hindsight makes clear problems that may not have been evident at the time, but it's worth looking at this transport plan in a bit more detail. The first stage involved using motorized sledges and ponies. This idea was taken from Shackleton, who had specifically noted that the transportation difficulties he experienced made the traverse take longer than anticipated and caused them to run low on their food stores and have to turn back. That's worth noting. Shackleton had trouble with these same motorized sledges. And these sledges were heavy, nearly brand new technology, and the Antarctic is an unfamiliar and unforgiving environment. So Scott started with three of them, lost one through the sea ice almost immediately after unloading it because it was too heavy, and the remaining two failed repeatedly from unclear faults. Scott had chosen to leave their engineer behind because he didn't think he would contribute to the scientific goals of the expedition, and didn't think that he would be a useful addition. However, after only a few miles, he abandoned the sledges and then transferred the extra load to his men and the ponies. Which brings us to the next phase, ponies. Scott's limited experience with dogs left him feeling they were too fast to keep up with and too difficult to control. On prior expeditions, Scott had fed dogs fish, which gave them chronic indigestion and left them irritable and weak. He also had his men run alongside the sleds, which made it difficult to keep up with dogs because dogs are faster. Scott was aware that skis could increase a man's speed over flat land, but he didn't feel comfortable with them, and so he elected to use ponies and heavier sleds instead. Additionally, Scott reasoned that dogs only saved labor over man-hauling, which is people pulling the sleds, because when a dog tired, it could be shot and used for food. By the time this happened, the sleds would be lighter and require fewer animals to pull them, and since people generally don't like being worked to their limits and then shot and eaten when they collapse, Using dogs this way could improve travel mobility. However, Scott didn't like the idea of killing and eating his dogs, so he reasoned that dogs would not add any significant benefit to the expedition over simply having his men carry their own gear, and decided to use ponies and motor sledges instead. So, they started with the ponies, and a very limited number of dogs to accomplish this next stage of the mission. There are reasons, however, why cultures that grow up in these environments almost universally prefer dogs for their transport. First, ponies are obligate vegetarians. 
there are no plants in the Antarctic. So since horse food is not the same vegetarian food that people can eat, Scott would have to carry all of the food for his ponies with them, adding significant weight to the expedition. Second, ponies sweat when exerting themselves. This leaves their skin wet and puts them at severe risk for cold when standing still. Now, Scott did know this, and he carried thick blankets to cover animals with at night, but you can imagine how well covering yourself with a thick blanket in the Antarctic cold would work against the weather. Third, a pony's feet are ill-suited for traveling through snow, which makes the travel difficult and slow for these animals. Shackleton had partially solved this by fitting Norwegian snowshoes to the animal's feet, but Scott's team shunned the use of the snowshoes, in part because Amundsen was Norwegian, and left them behind. Ponies would also have more difficulty than dogs climbing the icy slopes of Beardmore Glacier. Now, Scott had planned to leave the ponies behind at that point and travel under manpower and sail sledges alone, but dogs would have potentially made that trip faster. Basically, dogs eat meat, they don't sweat so they're less susceptible to hypothermia, they fit into tents, and can climb uneven surfaces, even though they couldn't pull the sledges up there with them. So dogs in this environment do offer many benefits over a pony. But in any case, Scott chose the ponies, started with 19, and nine of them died before leaving the initial camp. When the group set out to plant their largest depot, the one-ton depot, the struggles the animals and his men encountered slowed their progress, and they didn't have sufficient food to reach their initially planned site. They actually stopped almost 50 kilometers shy of their planned location. The group debated how to proceed, and eventually Scott decreed they would alter their plan and place the depot where they stopped. So Scott decided to trust that they could make better time on the return from the pole, despite the terrain being similar, since they would have only the men, no ponies, and they would know the territory. This decision would prove fatal. If the transport plan failure was the first red flag, the second was food stores. Now, every expedition has to estimate food needs of its crew, and Scott's was no different. However, instead of testing the caloric needs involved in man-hauling over the ice, he assumed that the exertion would be similar to the existing data he had. He also did not build in any real reserve rations for emergencies. Now, this was intended to keep the expedition as lightweight as possible for a quick push to the pole, enable them to carry more scientific samples, and allow them to carry less weight in general. However, it did mean that his team was malnourished from the start, and losing their pony and sledge support team certainly didn't help matters since now the men had to carry even more weight, which meant more exertion, which requires more calories. A couple of side notes to this. Despite their discomfort with eating dogs, they did end up eating the ponies. And second, a 2006 reenactment of Scott's Traverse had to abort and return home early due to severe malnutrition, because they were so malnourished from the start they didn't even have enough rations to complete their original plan. Now, unlike food, there is ample water in the Antarctic, but it's all frozen solid. That means that a team doesn't have to carry any water, but they do have to carry sufficient fuel to melt the ice. And this is Scott's third red flag. At the time, fuel was stored in tins that were sealed with leather rings. It was pretty well known that the fuel got lost through the pores in the leather at a fairly rapid rate, but Scott did nothing to mitigate this, trusting he would have sufficient fuel. As they progressed, it became clear that they were losing fuel more rapidly than they expected, and would need to either abort the mission or ration it severely on the return journey. You can guess the decision Scott made. There are a few other minor red flags, or yellow flags, if you will, for the soccer fans out there. 
Scott packed his sledges so that all the equipment had to be unloaded and repacked each day. This is as opposed to putting all the frequently used equipment on the outside for easy access when you needed it. He also had a pension for making last minute changes to the plan, such as changing the distance the dogs were taken each day, or slaughtering the ponies earlier than intended, and even adding an extra man to the already undernourished pole team without changing the amount of food they carried. Now Scott's push for the pole was hard, slow, and with little to no food. They were in competition with Roald Amundsen's group, and they pushed hard. They did reach the South Pole on January 17, 1912, and I'll let their own words tell the tale. Scott writes, quote, Tuesday, January 16th, Camp 68. Height 9,760 feet, temperature minus 23.5 degrees. The worst has happened, or nearly the worst. We marched well in the morning and covered seven and a half miles. Noon sight showed us in latitude 89 degrees 42 minutes south, and we started off in high spirits in the afternoon, feeling that tomorrow would see us at our destination. About the second hour of the march, Bauer's sharp eyes detected what he thought was a cairn. He was uneasy about it, but argued that it must be a sestrugus. That's a kind of wind-sculpted snow and ice pillar. Scott's words again. Quote, Half an hour later, he detected a black speck ahead, and soon we knew this could not be a natural snow feature. We marched on, found that it was a black flag tied to a sledge bearer near the remains of a camp. Sledge tracks and ski tracks going and coming, and the clear trace of dogs' paws, many dogs. This told us the whole story. The Norwegians have forestalled us and are first to the pole. It's a terrible disappointment, and I am very sorry for my loyal companions. Many thoughts come, and much discussion have we had. Tomorrow, we must march to the pole with all the speed we can compass. All the daydreams must go. It will be a wearisome return. End quote. Amundsen's team beat Scott to the pole by 34 days, and Scott's demoralized team now faced a long 1,600-kilometer march back to the coast along the route they came. The weather was not in their favor either, and swirling snow covered their outbound tracks, which made it hard to find their route back. They spent several days holed up in tents, unable to navigate at all, costing them time, food, and fuel, which were already in short supply. The team repeatedly suffered bouts of injury and illness, photokeratitis, snow blindness from the constant sunlight, frostbite and hypothermia from the cold, scurvy, malnutrition, and dehydration from their lack of supplies. And these began to wear on them. Scott managed to keep a diary of the events, and even though it's a bit long to read, my own retelling would not do this justice, so I think it's worth hearing the experience in Scott's own words. Quote, Sunday, March 11th. Titus Oates is very near the end, one feels. What we or he will do, God only knows. We discussed the matter after breakfast. He is a brave, fine fellow and understands the situation, but he practically asked for advice. Nothing could be said but to urge him to march as long as he could. One satisfactory result to the discussion, I practically ordered Wilson to hand over the means of ending our troubles to us, so that any one of us may know how to do so. Wilson had no choice between doing so and our ransacking the medicine case. We have 30 opium tablets apiece, and he is left with a tube of morphine. So far, the tragical side of our story. The sky completely overcast when we started this morning. We could see nothing, 
lost the tracks, and doubtless we have been swaying a good deal since. 3.1 miles for the forenoon, and terribly heavy dragging. Expected it. Know that six miles is about the limit of our endurance now. If we get no help from wind or surfaces, we have seven days' food and should be about 55 miles from the one-ton camp tonight. Six times seven equals 42, leaving us 13 miles short of our distance, even if things get no worse. Meanwhile, the season advances rapidly. Friday, March 16th, or Saturday the 17th. Lost track of dates, but think the last correct. Tragedy, all along the line. At lunch the day before yesterday, poor Titus Oates said he couldn't go on. He proposed we should leave him in his sleeping bag. That we could not do, and induced him to come on, on the afternoon march. In spite of its awful nature for him, he struggled on, and we made a few miles. At night, he was worse, and we knew the end had come. Should this be found, I want these facts recorded. Oates's last thoughts were of his mother, but immediately before, he took pride in thinking that his regiment would be pleased with the bold way in which he met his death. We can testify to his bravery. He has borne intense suffering for weeks without complaint, and to the very last was able and willing to discuss outside subjects. He did not, would not give up hope until the very end. He was a brave soul. This was the end. He slept through the night before last, hoping not to wake, but he woke in the morning, yesterday. It was blowing a blizzard, and he said, I'm just going outside and maybe some time. He went out into the blizzard, and we have not seen him since. I take this opportunity of saying that we have stuck to our sick companions to the last. In case of Edgar Evans, when absolutely out of food and he lay insensible, the safety of the remainder seemed to demand his abandonment, but Providence mercifully removed him at this very critical moment. He died a natural death, and we did not leave him till two hours after his death. We knew that poor Oates was walking to his death, but though we tried to dissuade him, we knew it was the act of a brave man and an English gentleman. We all hope to meet the end with a similar spirit, and assuredly, the end is not far. I can only write at lunch and then only occasionally. The cold is intense, minus 40 degrees at midday. My companions are unendingly cheerful, but we are all on the verge of serious frostbites. And though we constantly talk of fetching through, I don't think any one of us believes it in his heart. Sunday, March 18th. Today, lunch. We are 21 miles from the depot. Ill fortune presses, but better may come. We have had more wind and drift from ahead yesterday. Had to stop marching. Wind northwest, force four, temperature minus 35 degrees. No human being could face it, and we are worn out nearly. My right foot has gone, nearly all the toes. Two days ago, I was the proud possessor of the best feet. These are the steps of my downfall. Like an ass, I mixed a small spoonful of curry powder with my melted pemmican. It gave me violent indigestion. I lay awake and in pain all night, woke and felt done on the march. Foot went and I didn't even know it. Small measure of neglect and I have a foot which is not pleasant to contemplate. Bowers takes first place in condition, but there's not much to choose after all. The others are still confident of getting through, or pretend to be. I don't know. We have the last half fill of oil in our primus and a very small quantity of spirit, this alone between us and thirst. The wind is fair for the moment, and that is perhaps a fact to help. The mileage would have seemed ridiculously small on our outward journey. Monday, March 19th. Lunch. 
We camped with difficulty last night and were dreadfully cold till after our supper of cold pemmican and biscuit and a half a pannikin of cocoa cooked over the spirit. Then, contrary to expectation, we got warm and all slept well. Today we started the usual dragging manner, sledges dreadfully heavy. We are fifteen and a half miles from the depot and ought to get there in three days. What progress! We have two days of food, but barely a day's fuel. All our feet are getting bad. Wilson's best, my right foot worst, left's all right. There's no chance to nurse one's feet till we can get hot food into us. Amputation is the least I can hope for now. But will the trouble spread? That is the serious question. The weather doesn't give us a chance. The wind from the north to northwest and minus 40 temperature all day. Wednesday, March 21st. Got within 11 miles of the depot Monday night. Had to lay up all yesterday in a severe blizzard. Today, forlorn hope. Wilson and Bowers going to depot for fuel. Thursday, March 22nd and 23rd. Blizzard bad as ever. Wilson and Bowers unable to start. Tomorrow, last chance. No fuel and only one or two of food left. Must be near the end. Have decided it shall be natural. We shall march for the depot with or without our effects and die in our tracks. Thursday, March 29th. Since the 21st, we have had continuous gale from west-northwest and southwest. We had fuel to make two cups of tea apiece and bare food for two days on the 20th. Every day we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent it remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but are getting weaker, of course. The end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not, I do not think I can write more. R. Scott, last entry. For God's sake, look after our people. End quote. Of the five men that set out for the South Pole, all were lost. The last two, including Scott, died 18 kilometers shy of the one-ton depot. It's about 12 miles. With the tragedy being that had he stuck to his original plan with four team members and the depot placed 50 kilometers further in, all four team members would likely have made it there and been able to replenish their supplies. Despite their struggle to get back alive, Scott's sledge was found with several samples, including reportedly one of fossilized plants showing that Antarctica was once a much warmer and wetter place. He believed in the value of science and refused to let go of these samples even as he lay dying on the ice shelf. For all his struggle, Scott really did prioritize science and sparked the foundations of much of our understanding of the continent's geological history. Amundsen's tale is quite different, though. At the Pole, Amundsen wrote this, quote, We reckoned now that we were at the Pole. Of course, every one of us knew that we were not standing on the absolute spot. It would be an impossibility with the time and instruments at our disposal to ascertain the exact spot. But we were so near it that the few miles which possibly separated us from it could not be of the slightest importance. It was our intention to make a circle around this camp with a radius of 12 and a half miles, 20 kilometers, and be satisfied with that. After we had halted, we collected and congratulated each other, we proceeded to the greatest and most solemn act of the whole journey, the planting of our flag. So why was Amundsen's journey so much faster and more successful? About his success, he has this to say, quote, with sufficient planning, you can almost eliminate adventure from an expedition. I may say that this is the greatest factor, the way in which the expedition is equipped, 
the way in which every difficulty is foreseen and precautions taken for meeting or avoiding it. Victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck." Amundsen faced the same challenges as Scott, but he approached them very differently. Essentially, he spent a great deal of time anticipating any challenges and planning to mitigate as many as he could think of before he left. Here's an example of the kind of thought process he employed. For his route, he chose to start on the opposite side of the Ross Ice Shelf, avoiding the sea ice and limiting exposure to crevasses. It was 60 miles closer to the pole, and while the route had not been tried before, he anticipated the high polar altitude to be a problem and chose his route to be one with a much more gradual ascent to altitude rather than having to climb 2,500 meters up the Beardmore Glacier in one, one fell swoop. With more time spent in the higher elevations, his team would have more time to acclimatize. Amundsen also had his team travel at polar night. Now, during the summer months, the sun never sets in Antarctica, but it does circle around to the north at night, so his team had the sun at their backs, and this prevented the photokeratitis that plagued Scott's expedition. Amundsen also assumed that his team would be less capable of doing calculations and any sort of complex cognitive ability on the trail. So he wrote out navigational sheets and carried them with him before leaving Norway. He also reviewed how to take position readings at high latitude and trained the rest of his expedition to do the same. He took a very different approach to transport as well. He wrote, quote, The English have loudly and openly told the world that ski and dogs are unusable in these regions and that fur clothes are rubbish. We will see. We will see. End quote. Rather than abandoning dogs, he studied other explorers and cultures that use them to great effect. And dog teams, as we said, have many advantages in cold environments. They don't sweat, they stay warmer, they can eat meat, so hunting seal or penguin meat would save room for supplies. They can also eat other dogs and the rations that people can eat. So everything is fair game, meaning they can carry overall less weight. Their feet are better suited to snow, and they have an easier time climbing over rocky and icy terrain, which is good for the route that Amundsen took. He spent years training with sled dogs and ensured that all his men were trained skiers to help keep up with them. He also leveraged his time with the Inuit, learning techniques for building sledges, hauling, and ice survival in general. He chose to use a modified lightened dog sled as his primary transport and set out with a streamlined team trained on skis using the dogs to carry most of their supplies. He measured how far a dog sled could go in a day and then deliberately kept his mileage well short of that, allowing his dogs and men to rest, keep a reserve of strength in case conditions were harder than expected, and left him with a food reserve in case they were conditions were easier. Amundsen's team also employed the technique of sacrificing dogs that Scott was loath to do. Now, this may not be popular with everyone, but it was effective. He began with 53 dogs and ended the trip with 11. He also packed his sledges to permit easy access to frequent items and thus limited his team's time exposed to the elements once they were finished traveling. And you can imagine being in blowing winds, minus 40 degrees temperature, it would be a lot nicer to have your tent unpacked and set up in minutes rather than have to go through your entire supply and then at the beginning of the day repack everything. Regarding the fuel problem, rather than relying on the porous leather seals that Scott did, he opened every tin and then reclosed them using lead, sod lead solder. 
He then tested these tins before the trip, and as an example of how well this worked, an unused Amundsen depot found 50 years after his expedition still had full stores of fuel. So like Scott, Amundsen also planted depots. He did this to avoid carrying all the supplies he needed. But he planted over three times as many depots as Scott did, and assumed that his navigation would not be accurate, basically planning for blowing snow covering the tracks. So, he planted black food containers every 1.5 kilometers, and flags every 13 kilometers along his route to help him find it. He also built two-meter-tall cairns every few kilometers, with notes listing the position and distance to the next depot. For the depots themselves, he marked their position with a line of bamboo flags every one kilometer for eight kilometers on either side, with direction markers to ensure he could locate them even with imperfect navigation under low visibility conditions. The depot-laying trips acted for him, as they did for Scott, as short tests, allowing the team to discover and address faults in their plan before undertaking the final push. As you might imagine, this whole adventure has become the stuff of historical legend, and there are dozens of books written on this, defending both sides and making very valid points for each. Everything is also made easier by the hindsight, highlighting the success of one and the failure of the other. But that said, there are stark differences between the expeditions, and few would argue that Amundsen's level of preparation and methods are a bad thing. So what are those differences? Scott trusted that prior experience would be sufficient to handle the challenges of a studied but untraveled environment. Amundsen examined that past experience, took the things that worked, and rejected the things that didn't. Both of them studied their environments and anticipated the challenges, but Amundsen paid attention to minute details like the position of the sun, the difficulties of high-latitude navigation, and even the altitude. Scott didn't. He put his trust in new technology to solve these problems without actually testing it. Amundsen looked at the pluses and minuses associated with tried-and-true technology, took the things that worked, and then modified the things that didn't based on the existing technology, i.e. soldering the can shut instead of the leather seals. He also tested everything extensively before putting it into the field. Both expeditioners used their depot planting excursions as test runs for the final push, but Scott tended to change his plans on the fly without modifying the rest of his strategy to accommodate the change, like adding an extra man to the polar team. Amundsen didn't do this. He stuck to his plans, but he built in room for error, and he only adjusted the plans after careful testing on the trail told him it was safe to do so, and if he was able to modify other aspects of the plan to accommodate those. Scott assumed his gear would work as planned, leaving him with several aspects open to single-point failure, while Amundsen assumed that the gear and techniques would not work as planned and built in redundancies, adding extra depots, carrying extra clothing. To be clear, this trip is extremely hard for anyone. It's cold, it's high exertion, it's high altitude, it's over extremely rough and dangerous terrain, and at the time, there was really no one else out there. There were no rescues. You couldn't call for assistance. Today, we don't do anything like this. We use specialized machines, fossil fuel engines, and have the benefit of air rescue and communication. These guys were on their own, going somewhere no humans had ever been, and had to choose between doing it in a way that was almost successful before, and following in those footsteps, or inventing brand new strategies. Scott chose the former, Amundsen chose the latter, and you can see how they turned out.
Scott chose to organize an expedition around what had been done before and the glory of the human spirit. He trusted himself and his men to handle any challenge, and he put together a plan based on what had been done before and his own abilities. It didn't leave much in reserve in case of a failure, and when things did not go according to this plan, he attempted to modify them as little as possible. However, his lack of reserve, trust in personal endurance, and unwillingness to abort his mission, even after so many red flags, led to the loss of his crew and his mission. Amundsen, on the other hand, did not copy what was done before. He took a chance and tried something new. But he only innovated when it was necessary, and even then only used tried-and-true techniques as his base and extensively tested anything that wasn't tried before. He used careful planning to eliminate as many variables as he could, leaving him free to tackle the unexpected risks that may occur without having to fear that any expected risks would come back to bite him later on. He used preparation to turn the extraordinary into the mundane, relying on past experience, extensive equipment testing, and training to take the place of endurance and grit. As a culture, we tend to glorify men like Scott, who gave their lives for exploration, the cowboy spirit of competition, and the heroic push never leaving a man behind until literally giving everything he had. It's exciting, it's sexy, but it's also dangerous and often unsuccessful. Amundsen's expedition was so well-planned it was almost boring. The vast majority of his expedition took place well before he ever left, and this is not nearly as exciting and may not play as well in media stories. But the lessons for success in the face of adversity are quite clear, and as we'll see in this next story, the expeditions don't always have to be boring. So what happens when things don't go your way, when plans fail? How do you survive when you find yourself in a situation like Scott's? For that, we turn to Shackleton. Part two of this episode will take us from the epic adventures of Shackleton up through the present day, and I'll post it up on the website next week. So keep your ears out, and let me know how you like these split format episodes. Once again, I am Dana Levin, and thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. A special thanks to our production team, Jeremy Seeker and Emily Stratton. And a special thanks to Eric Antonson for inspiring the idea behind this episode, and to Fenella Kennedy for inspiring the podcast itself. The intro and outro music to this episode is provided by David Keogh and available on his website through ReverbNation.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at ExplorationMedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing podcast at ExplorationMedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.